0: Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Animal Chat with me, Harry Ekman,
1: and me, Matthew Payne.
0: Hey Matt, guess who our guest is on this episode?
1: It's it's Lola, Lola Weber. How How did you guess? Because we like interviewed her together, Harry. I was there. Yeah, that's true. And you sent me a Facebook message this morning saying that we needed to record an intro for the podcast. So,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fair point, Matt.
1: Lola Weber you've known her for a long time is that right I
0: have yeah I've known Lola for a little over 10 years now and I I met Lola first of all when we used to work together at Whisper World Society for the Protection of Animals which is now World Animal Protection and so we used to work together and then around a about eight years ago, Lola, uh, myself, and another friend of ours, Suzanne Rogers, who we also work together with, set up Change for Animals Foundation. And mm-hmm. so we have worked together for yeah 10 years, and we've been running an organization together for eight. And so, yeah, uh, she's uh, not only a colleague, but is uh, one of my dearest friends.
1: So what what has Lola been doing over the last over 10 years or so, and, and why the earth have we got on the podcast today? That's a very good question, Matt. I'm really thanks, glad thanks. you asked. I am um, getting really good at this now. I'm, now. I'm nailing it.
0: We've got Lola on the podcast basically because she was easy to get hold of, as I said. She's a good of mine, and we were desperate.
1: Um, but no, She'll really. She'll feel so good about that, Harris. She will feel. So good. <laughs>
0: She's going to love this intro. Uh, oh, no. I, yeah, I better I better jazz it up a little bit. No, Lola, Lola, actually, anybody that knows anything about the dog meat trade internationally probably knows Lola Weber's name. So Lola has been involved in the anti-dog meat movement for as long as I've known her, for, for 10 or more years. And she, it's no exaggeration to say that I think... When you think about what's been going on in the anti-dog meat movement, the successes Mm -hmm. that have been in the last few years, the closure of farms in South Korea, the changes in legislation, the municipalities in Indonesia that are closing down markets and banning the trade, and the whole anti-dog meat movement around the world, it's genuinely not an exaggeration to say that a lot of that. Is down to Lola. She is one of the most single minded, focused, tenacious, passionate people I've ever met in my entire life. And this has been her essentially build up to her life's work. And really, I think that if Lola hadn't been involved in the anti dog meat movement as it is, we would not be as far along as we are. She really is the driving force behind this movement. There are obviously many other amazing people involved, but she has been able to bring together alliances and coalitions and move this movement forward in quite a profound way and so for me it's always just a real delight to speak to her
1: i have to say that this is something that i knew a little bit about but not a huge amount so i loved every single minute of this podcast lola was an absolute joy to speak to and she's i just find it really inspirational really really inspirational
0: you know what she really is, and it's—it um, sounds really corny, but Lola really does embody all of those things that we talk about when we think about what's best in animal welfare in regards to, you know, passion and dedication and commitment. Uh, that's that really is Lola.
1: I agree. I completely agree. Right, let's do it. Let's listen now to episode three, the Animal Chat Podcast with Lola Weber.
0: your first pet
2: um well i was born into a family who had a dog called rufus so technically rufus was my first pet but he died when i was five and then after that we went to the shelter the local shelter and we got my dog splodge so splodge was probably my first kind of active sourcing of a companion i suppose
0: and was he um
2: she. i mean you she
0: <laughs> oh, i'm sorry it, how did i not know splodge <laughs> is, is such a feminine name um, <laughs> you don't know. would would you say that, that that splodge and rufus and the other dogs i mean your affinity with dogs is is obviously a big part of you and how much did did splodge and rufus and the other dogs shape who you are
2: oh my god enormously i I, I, yeah, just so much of, not just my childhood, my adulthood, my todayhood, has just revolves around the dogs who I share my life with. And I, one thing I remember with the dogs growing up was I'd get pocket money every week. And I remember I always put half my pocket money under my dog's beds. And I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know where I thought they were going with this pocket money, but it always just felt like the right thing to do until I found out that my brother was taking it but anyway (laughs) that's still a sore issue but I just remember growing up and it it really kind of they brought I just adored them like walking in from school and and the dogs being there and then seeing how happy they were when you took them out for a walk and just how much pleasure we just you know just such a mutual kind of you know affection for each other and I you know and I I think what I learned most for them is growing up I also remember being really stressed out if I thought that the dogs hadn't had a good day if I kind of looked back and I thought oh but they you know we didn't take them on a long enough walk or oh you know I spent more time doing my homework and I didn't throw the ball enough for splodge and I know that's her favorite thing to do and I kind of always remember growing up with this real sense of responsibility to make sure that they had a good life not just not just fed and watered but you know had a good life and had good days and I, you know, and I, I still carry that burden <laughs> with my dogs today. Whereas like I can't relax into, you know, being able to focus on work if I think that the dogs haven't had a had a good day. And all of a scene my dogs are all rescue dogs. And then when you see them go to sleep and they are wagging their tails in the which happened to my late with my latest rescue dog I've only had for A couple of months now and she started wagging her tail in her sleep and it it feels like a little mini victory where you think oh you're going to sleep now with happy memories from the day you've had and seeing she came from a dog meat farm and I just think finally I like to think you have good things to dream about rather than always worrying what you used to dream about on a dog meat farm so um so yeah I think um I definitely I think the dogs have That I grew up with and live with now shape so many of my decisions and shape so much of how I see the world and feel about things.
1: I suppose for me Lola to just find out a little bit about what you're what you're doing in in Bali in terms of the work you do or maybe even how you ended up there you know the sort of journey you've been on to get to where you are.
2: Well actually it's, it's it all started with the dog meat campaign when I was back in London working with Harry. Um, and basically, as soon as I started to find out more and more about the, the dog meat trade in in Asia and Southeast Asia, it kind of just became the absolute driving force behind everything that's kind of happened in my life since in, in many ways. So essentially, had the opportunity to, to move to Singapore. So having been working in London, the criteria really was that I could easily get from Singapore to South Korea and we were basically on the same time zone.
0: How long ago was that Lola? Uh,
2: That was back in 2011 and yeah and it it just kind of made everything so much easier. I'd always feel frustrated when I was working on issues in Asia being back in the UK but by the time you wake up you feel like you've missed a whole day of, of what's been going on on this part of the world. And then when I was based in Singapore, as well as obviously working in South Korea, was also trying to develop Change for Animals Foundations, other dog and cat meat campaigns, and also wildlife work um, in other countries in the region. And I kept being asked by a local organization here in Bali to kind of come over and, and help with some developing strategy and investigations into the dog meat trade here, which is generally not a lot is known about internationally. Um, so that's how I started coming to Bali, and then really it was a matter of of realizing how big an issue the dog meat trade was, not just in Bali but in many parts of of Indonesia. And again, it was always just about getting a step closer to the issues that you're working on, to really understand the drivers and kind of all the you know the subtle cultural drivers in particular that facilitate these trades, and you know and to really understand the people and to get a feel for the people and you know kind of how you can you know truly tackle those issues that are so often defended as culture. So that was kind of then, it was just an opportunity, and I booked myself and my daughter a one-way ticket to Bali, and that was five and a half, six years ago, and hmm. we've wow. been here ever since. So that's, weirdly enough, how I made it to Bali, and fortunately enough, there's still a direct flight from, from Bali to, to Korea, so that makes life easier as well. Um, And yeah, it's, it's, that's how we ended up here and a couple of kids more later and a few more dogs later, we're still here. (laughs) (laughs) You,
0: you've kind of had a, um, an international upbringing. Um, You kind of grew up in lots of different countries and traveled around a little bit. So do you think that that's made it easier for you to adjust to moving from place to place and settling in? I mean, does Bali feel like home to you now? Did Singapore feel like home to you before?
2: Yeah, um, I I think, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me at the time, I don't know how I would feel moving now because I would say Bali definitely feels like home. And I think the kind of tester is always, you know, when you, you kind of land, you think, oh, I'm home. And now when I, you know, whenever I kind of come back from travels and I, you know, you know, you get the announcement saying, welcome to Denpasar, the outside temperature, blah, blah, blah. It definitely feels like the kind of welcome home announcement. Whereas I think when I was living in Singapore, and I don't know if it was just because I was in a in a different age or different place, or maybe I just didn't like Singapore as much, <laughs> but it always felt more like home when I would when I'd go back to the UK. Yeah, whereas now I would say that Indonesia feels like home and it's not just the place, it's also the people. And Mm. I I feel like in Indonesia I've like I, I really like the, the Indonesian people like it's it's got there's so much vibrancy here and there's so much passion and yes there are so many awful things that happen to animals just like there are all over in every country in every part of the world here it feels like there's such an energy behind it and you know when when something bad happens or when people find out that something bad is happening to animals people are ready to take it to the streets and they're ready to speak passionately and fearlessly and it's, you know, it's a really high energy place to work where you really, truly feel like any change is possible. So, um, so yeah, I, I think I've definitely found home in Indonesia.
1: So when you were in um, London, Lola, did you, what was it about the Dog meat campaign that you worked on with Harry? Like you, you spoke about, what was it about that that drew you in?
2: Yeah, I, I kind of don't really know. I, I remember just more, so myself and Harry were, you know, working on kind of companion animal team. And obviously there were so many awful things that happened to companion animals all over the world. And then I think it was just for me, the more I found out about the dog meat trade and the dog meat industry, it just seemed like the ultimate betrayal of, you know, dogs. And like so many of us, I'd always grown up with dogs and and it just felt like the ultimate kind of betrayal of that relationship and that connection and, you know, everything that dogs do for us and, you know, all the joy they had always brought to my life. And then it was just the absolute brutality. And the more I kind of found out about it and just the more and more brutal it seemed to be like to the point where my brain at that time truly couldn't comprehend that anything that awful was happening. And then it really wasn't until, I suppose the first time I went to Korea and I really saw it firsthand that it was, it was that was definitely a point of no return. I think that particular point has truly defined my whole trajectory in life and you know I often call it the ultimate mistake (laughs) which it kind of and I often think where would I be if I never made that trip um but at the same time it's having that kind of or having that feeling of purpose and kind of determination and knowing what you feel like your change to the world can be and the change you can make for you know the future generations you know I, I definitely think that's what the dog me campaign has given me it's also, you know, age me and doggy is not of other less <laughs> appealing issues. But yeah, it's definitely given me my, my kind of I suppose my reason to be in many ways.
0: That first trip that you did, because I know I know that you've kind of spoken about it before, obviously there must have been a huge amount of preparation to go out there. You'd already been working on the dog meat campaign. You were well aware of what it was that you were expecting to see, but how how much more was it than what you were expecting than you were prepared for? What was for you the the thing that you you said it was kind of a defining moment? What was it that defined it for you?
2: Yeah, well, like I, it's God, it's awful. It's so really difficult to talk about, and <clears> um. <throat> in a weird way it's just it was I don't think I've ever been able to talk about it without getting upset which is ridiculous because it was 10 years ago and so much has happened since then um but I think I remember my way of like preparing to go was literally I like a crazy person I would just do as much research as I could and I'd try and almost train desensitize myself before I even went and I was you know watching all these videos and learning anything and everything I could about the industry remotely um but then I think it's it's when you're actually there and I think it's that literal you know the markets you know in in somewhere like South Korea you have the dog meat markets and you have the dog meat farms and they're just the most sad awful places but the thing with these live animal markets not just obviously in um in South Korea but throughout Asia and other parts of the world is that real moment where you're standing right there and you know that an animal is about to lose their life in a horrible, horrible way and there's, you know, there's nothing you can do right there and then and you stand there and it's it's a very surreal experience and I think it kind of changed me forever, forever on from that point. And, you know, there's one particular dog where, you know, you kind of lean down to talk to them and um, and then kind of having to walk away and knowing what you're leaving them to. So all you can do in that kind of situation in order <clears throat> to pick yourself up, really, is you, you never forget them and you let them inspire a movement and a change. And, and that's kind of how you, you cope with it and how you well how I coped with it anyway I should say I'm not saying it was the best (laughs) way for everyone but that's definitely what I did
1: um we've talked a little bit about it but what sort of a journey in terms of including the farms and the markets does a dog go on if you if you if you don't mind and you're okay to talk about it
2: yeah of course um well it it depends where in the world so in someone like South Korea South Korea is very unique in that it has these mass intensive dog meat farms so Essentially, they they look and they operate very much like intensive farms of, of any animal that's treated as, you know, for human consumption, as livestock. And so for dogs and dog meat farms in South Korea, they essentially are generally they're born on farms for the most part. And South Korea is unique, again, in that it has these breeds of dogs that it deems pet dogs versus meat dogs. So these meat dogs should never be pet dogs, according to the dog meat industry. Having said that, it's a total myth. And on these dog meat farms, you find any and every breed. But I suppose traditionally you have these kind of these two breeds of dogs that have been, it's been decided that their fate is to be meat dogs and they're treated with absolute brutality. So they're born on these farms and there's just absolutely no more regard that is given to them than if they were a sack of potatoes. And um, so they, they essentially are raised on these farms in battery cages um, with very little, well, definitely not appropriate um, food, very little water, no protection. Farmers are anticipating high mortality rates, and so they make very little effort to kind of even particularly keep the animals alive. And then when they're about one year of age, they're collected from the farms and transported to markets. And once they're at the market, they wouldn't leave again. And they're either slaughtered on the market, or they're then taken on to, to larger slaughterhouses to, to be slaughtered. Um, But in in places like here in Indonesia, the majority of the dogs by far are are stolen pets. So it's not necessary. I mean, in some cases, thieves do go into people's homes or compounds and steal the animals. Whereas a lot of the time, obviously here, dogs have a slightly more free roaming life than they do, well, I suppose, more rather than the Western way. Um, and so they're just collected from the streets and you know and sometimes these dogs are taken on journeys literally for days and days where they're just crammed in cages and you know no food water rest or anything else and they arrive at the markets and definitely in in the markets that I've been to in Indonesia it's a matter of waiting for a customer to come and and pick a dog and the dog is slaughtered there on site in front of the other dogs And in somewhere like South Korea, the the dogs are generally electrocuted, whereas in Indonesia, in the markets, they're normally bludgeoned on the head and then blowtorched to remove the fur. And um, I think what really sticks out for that, for, you know, whether it's in South Korea and Indonesia or Vietnam, wherever it is, is just the absolute total disregard for these animals. Like it's, you know, as... As people who care passionately and hugely about animals, and it goes without say that they're sentient beings, and it goes without say that they should be treated with compassion and respect. What you see is, it's literally to most people who work in the industry, they're purely a commodity. That's that's all they are, and and I think that was something that struck me. And I remember thinking the first time I went to that dog meat market in Korea, which now thankfully is closed down, is you kind of think, God, this was the most defining awful day of my life i mean not obviously not comparing it to those poor animals lives you think you know this is something i will never ever forget but obviously to the traders it's just another day it's just another kind of day of making money and it's you know it's it's very surreal to kind of get your head around that i think you know and you just they mean the world to you and they they essentially mean nothing to the people who are trading in them
0: what kind of scale are we talking about here, Lola? Like the numbers of dogs this affects?
2: Oh, it's just, it's mind-blowing. It's, it's huge. You know, in somewhere like South Korea, we're looking at a couple of million dogs every year. And then in Indonesia, nobody really knows. Like it is kind of almost easier to look at it province by province. And somewhere like North Sulawesi, you know, you're kind of looking at 10, 20,000 dogs a month in some of the other cities on the island of Java, you're looking at about 15,000 dogs a month, you know, it's huge numbers of animals every day, not only being slaughtered, but it's the trade and it's, you know, the treatment throughout. And, um, you know, with the dogs on South Korean dog meat farms, it's just, you kind of think, God, you've lived a life where you've just never known even the most, you know, any type of basic compassion in any shape or form. And that's where when you can work with these animals and you do have the opportunity to save them, it's truly a privilege. You know, you you get to be that person where for the first time for these animals you really get to show them compassion and a gentle touch.
1: What what's the motivation behind the the sellers apart from is it purely just financial or is there more of a cultural element to it? That they, you know, that they're wanting to participate in something that they believe is part of culture or are there any other reasons for why the market sellers and the farmers are supposed uh, participate in it
2: yeah i mean i i would say it's purely down to profitability and i would say that there's there's no other real reason like you know there, there's no pride in being a dog meat farmer or a trader it's hugely controversial wherever it happens you know don't get me wrong like i mean this, this isn't mainstream, whilst the numbers are huge, it's not mainstream at all. And, um, you know, and so it's not a nice job. I mean, nobody wants to be farming or slaughtering or, you know, stealing dogs for a living. But it can be hugely profitable, you know, especially in somewhere like Indonesia, where, you know, the dogs are just collected from the streets. It's essentially, you know, a, a zero investment job for for maximum profits. So no. Whilst dog meat consumers might argue that there are certain cultural elements or drivers behind their choices to to consume dog meat, I wouldn't. Have, I would generally say that those involved in the trade, I'm yet to find anyone who would say that they're they're maintaining a kind of a culture or a tradition or anything like that. A lot of them will have inherited it from their fathers or their grandfathers who were involved in the dog meat trade in some way. But I, I've also never met someone who wouldn't leave that type of business if if and when they're given a chance.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because if you look at somewhere like the Faroe Islands or Japan that have a whale meat industry, obviously there's a financial incentive, but it's very small and there's sort of a cultural element to what they're doing as a historical cultural element. They want to maintain uh, tradition almost. So uh, that's why I was really interested in that question. So is it... What's poverty like then for the, you know, what's life like for the market, for the people that are selling them? Do they have any other opportunities to do any other sort of employment or is this literally working in the market is their sole option?
2: Well, I would argue that everyone has a choice. Um, From my experience, those who, are you know, are really involved in the trade. You know, so like the dog thieves, sure, they may very well be opportunistic. And a lot of the times what will happen is, you know, kind of younger people, you know, a, a trader will say, you know, go and catch 10 dogs for me. So in that case, you know, it's like, do those people still have a choice whether they do that? Absolutely. Um, but I would say that there is an element of poverty-stricken communities where that's seen as as a way of making money. But um, but with the others, I would definitely say that it's it's a choice. And, you know, kind of a lot of them are making significant money um, and also ultimately they're, they're breaking laws and they kind of choose to do that. So would I agree that, you know, if the authorities should absolutely take the initiative to try and facilitate a transition of some kind? I wouldn't say it's a poverty driven business. And, you know, and generally dog meat consumption, it, it isn't consumed by poor people necessarily like it's not a very me and so again you know it, it it's choice and I think that you have to when you when you're working on these kind of campaigns you have to look at the big picture and you have to you know look at all different sides of it because if you truly want to change people like I mean you two would both know better than I do but if you truly want to make that change you have to work with the people you're trying to change in order to change that behavior and to really secure that lasting change rather than superficially putting a band-aid feel good factor on something you have to really understand this and work with the people who essentially are at the at the root of the problem
0: that's an area that you've actually done a lot of work on isn't it because the uh, that transition and that change that you you're talking about is something that has actually happened in south korea and the alternative livelihoods to to some of the farmers and that hadn't happened before that was an approach that nobody had really taken before is trying to convince farmers to stop farming in in a way that supports them and supports that opportunity for change rather than just berating them for for of being dog meat farmers and how did that come about
2: well it's you're, you're totally right the problem is like when you're trying to like for, for decades and decades you know the kind of in the case of Korea for example and the, the dog meat industry would say one thing and the animal rights movement would say another and for decades we're just clashing and so in that kind of environment the government doesn't want to get involved because it's you know it's too hot an issue and it's too contentious and so they kind of stare steer away from it but also the dialogue never evolves. it's all just kind of superficially the message is you know it's our right to eat dogs and the other side is saying you know stop eating dogs and the dialogue would never progress and so it was after years of meeting with dog meat farmers really and one thing that really stuck out was that every single dog meat farmer said that they wanted to leave the business and said, but you know, how are we meant to leave something? This is all we know, this is all we've done, or, you know, we don't have opportunity to do anything else. And so it's kind of based on that principle where it's again like we were talking about before, you know, no one was taking real pride in this, you know, whilst it's defended as a cultural right, when the industry is really forced into a corner, when you actually speak to the, you know, the individuals who make up that industry, nobody really wants to be doing it. It's, it's hard work, like a lot of the times, you know, it brings family shame, the younger generation doesn't want to kind of be associated with the dog meat industry. And um, and so it was kind of it was through those conversations and that dialogue and you know and at first the farmers were really suspicious of me. It's kind of all of their engagements with with animal rights activists and the animal protection movement had always been very argumentative, antagonistic. Whereas this way, it's a bit kind of like okay, ultimately it's like what will it take you to stop doing this and what do you want to do? And that was where kind of identifying alternative livelihoods and you know and also an opportunity to save those animals there and then came around because you know whilst we can't save our way out of most of these issues you know that they're too big as much you know and people say why can't you save them all you know I, I don't think that there's anyone who feels more that way than myself. But the reality is, is that the, the scale of the problem is too big. But, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in saving those that we can and also using those ambassadors, which these farm closures created to really help promulgate that message, you know, kind of both within country and also internationally. And hopefully, this hopefully it also makes people think about other animals and can, you know, kind of think, OK, well, if. I think it's so wrong for dogs to be treated this way in intensive farming systems. Maybe it's not OK for chickens and pigs to be treated this way in my country either.
1: How how did you feel, Lola, when you sat down with the farmers for for the first time? Like, how did that affect, you know, what was that like? Because I think that's really fascinating you said that. Uh, like you mentioned, it's very easy to be very passionately against something, but then to actually meet and sit at the table to talk and Really importantly, listen to the people that you know. A lot of people have got a lot of strong feelings about. What was that like for you? How did you How did you feel meeting them for the first time?
2: Yeah, well, it's funny because I think you know you're almost people expect that you're meeting these monsters and it kind of do all these awful things. And they're people who are responsible for a lot of animal suffering because these animals, they they suffer enormously on these dog meat farms. But They're just people, you know, we're all just people and, you know, people who have different values and have made different life choices and have different understandings of things. But you realise that you can you can feel empathy and compassion for these dog farmers as well. You know, a lot of the time, from my experience with the dog farmers you meet, is they consider themselves dog people, and most of their stories will start with the sentence I, re- "I like dogs," and so you know, I got a few dogs, and then kind of one thing led to another kind of thing, and all of a sudden I had twenty dogs, and then in order to make money, I started selling them, and that's how a lot of dog meat farms would start with people kind of considering themselves dog people. And so that's also, you know, a lot of the time, then when you discuss with them what they want to do, initially, they start off by saying that they want to work with dogs in some kind of way. (laughs) And um, because they, you know, it's just it's a very different relationship, but they're not these monsters that you meet, you know, that they're just people. And you realize that you always have something in common with someone. You know, you can always find that common ground. And if you can find that common ground and you can truly build a relationship of trust because there's a lot of, you know, mutual suspicion, I guess, you know, and once you get past that, you really can build this understanding and, you know, and eat eventually some kind of respect.
0: I suppose despite the, you know, the knee jerk reaction and the feelings, the way we perceive farmers, I'm not talking about industrial farmers, but like the, the classic example of a farmer. As somebody who cares about their cows and their sheep and looks after them in the fields, I mean, that parallel is probably similar to some of these dog meat farmers. It's just they're thinking about it from a dog point of view, and we're thinking about it from a cow and sheep point of view. But they're looking at it as animals under their care that they, they do in their own way care about.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. They wouldn't recognize themselves as how they're being portrayed in the media. And I think that's another thing that's important in having these dialogues with them, because they feel, you know, you find out that, you know, they see what how they're being portrayed in the media by the animal rights movement. And they're kind of offended by that, because they, they don't see themselves that way
0: working in the on the dog meat industry one of the biggest things that we that we are questioned about and one of the things that uh, that we're confronted with is is that question of why dogs why what's special about dogs compared to all the other animals that get eaten and are caught up in the in the food chain? And so how do you how do you reply to that?
2: Well, it's it's really difficult because I, I think all animals are suffering on these on these farms. And, and, you know, I would never endorse, you know, often when we meet with the traders in Indonesia, they kind of say like, OK, well, we'll work with you. But can we can we trade chickens? It's like, no, you can't trade chickens. And, they, you know, they kind of say, like, OK, what about pigs? It's like, no, not pigs either. And it's kind of difficult because they're kind of animal, you know. Obviously, not how I would call myself like an animal person. Mm. You know, they consider they're used to working with animals and they kind of that's what they think their skill set is or what their expertise is in, in some way. But I all these animals are suffering and I would never endorse or promote the suffering of a dog to be replaced by that of any other animal ever. I guess the way I see it is that two wrongs don't make a right. So just because, yes, in in the UK, pigs and chickens are suffering just the way the dogs are, for example, on, on dog meat farms in South Korea, that doesn't make one campaign more or less valuable. You know, they're both wrong and they both need to be tackled and need to work on all of these issues um and i would also say that you know with the, with the dog meat campaign we have the slight advantage or a significant advantage maybe in the in two ways one is that people in many many parts of the world including the countries we're talking about do have some kind of relationship with dogs and dogs are widely, you know, people can relate to them maybe because a lot of them have grown up surrounded by them, had them in their homes in some way, things like that. And also the other, you know, reason it could be argued arguably a lower hanging fruit is that no country has a regulated legalized dog meat trade and so it's easier in that we're not trying to you know totally reverse legislation we're trying to create legislation that will explicitly prohibit it rather than taking away and then you know a legalized regulated industry and that's why whenever there's any talk on like trying to regulate the dog meat trade when people say okay well these really bad things and this is what we'll hear a lot from the dog meat industry itself it's like yeah but these bad things are only happening because you won't It's not regulated. So we need to recognize dogs as livestock and, you know, we'll follow rules. Just tell us what rules you want us to follow. But we know that once we have a regulated, legalized dog meat industry, there's essentially no going back. And we as animal protectionists, we're not going to be able to come up or I definitely wouldn't be prepared to put my name on a set of guidelines on how to humanely raise and slaughter dogs, mainly because I don't believe it's possible. And so I think the idea that this would alleviate or end the suffering just by regulating it. I, I think is is to, there's nothing, no evidence suggests that would be true. And all you have to do is say, look at our regulated industries and look at how much awful suffering it doesn't help control disease outbreaks. You know, look at the state of the world. So, yeah, I think I've gone off on a tangent, but my main principle would be that wrongs <laughs> don't make a right. And also, you know, we will have a chance to really banish this and really make it a thing of the past within our lifetime. You know, that's definitely, you know, I don't want to leave the world until we've secured at least a dog meat free world.
0: You mentioned something just before about the markets and obviously this the the dogs being slaughtered actually there and then in the markets in front of people and obviously this is now something this podcast is march 2020 and we are in the midst of the coronavirus crisis and so live animal markets and these kinds of markets are essentially where the coronavirus started in china and so do you think that that is going to have an impact on the dog meat trade. Obviously, the virus came from the wildlife trade, but these are still live animal markets. And so are you seeing a, a recognition of that now? Is it affected your work? Is it is it pushing things further in the right direction?
2: Well, I think it's like, I mean, it can't be ignored anymore, right? And I mean, it, it is a little bit disappointing to date to see that there's not as much media coverage as I think there should be kind of really highlighting where this awful virus came from but also how we should have known it was coming you know it's it we've, we've been in a very similar position like what less than 20 years ago and so it's it's not really surprising that you know it when you go to these markets what's mostly surprising is that this isn't happening all the time because you know you've got such a mixture of different species being brought in from so many different areas all intermixing and you know under most unhygienic ways being slaughtered side by side um and definitely obviously as i'm sure a lot of people listening will have seen in the news you know there've been huge calls for change coming you know from within China from the Chinese government taking quite strong action to to kind of curb this outbreak by passing laws with immediate effect to end this kind of trade you know which you know I just hope that it lasts it really does result in real kind of trade because not that long ago obviously the Chinese government was encouraging for example wildlife farming the kind of poorer rural um villages as a, as a source of income. So I don't know exactly how it, it will play out in the longer term, but I do feel like, I hope that we've kind of got to that that point where there's, there's no going back. It, we can never just go back as business as usual in these kind of places. And obviously Change for Animals Foundation, um, which is myself and Harry are nice plug new founders of <laughs> um, working in Indonesia. Shameless.
1: Absolutely shameless. Wow, that was I can't believe I'm part of this project. This is ridiculous. I know.
0: I mean just just mentioning Change for Animals Foundation, just randomly just saying the words Change for Animals Foundation. You can
2: also
1: donate to the Matthew Payne Foundation if you like. <laughs> I will send you the details.
2: Is that change animals.org?
0: Okay, uh- <laughs> yeah. yes that's right lola changeforanimals.org or you can find change for animals on facebook or any other social media
2: site nice i'll be sure to check that out harry uh- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but obviously we've been to these markets and for a long time have been campaigning and at the time we were always talking about rabies, even though it was obvious it's not just rabies that's a problem. But we, you know, we had collected all this evidence that these rabies positive dogs and cats were, well, dogs especially were being brought into these markets and exposing thousands of people every day to rabies positive dogs, which is insane. And, you know, and that's not to mention that alongside these dogs in places like North Sulawesi, they're selling monkeys, wild boar, chickens, cats, rats, bats, snakes, anything and everything. And so for me, you know, I think for a lot of people, but definitely having seen it firsthand, you say it's it's totally unsurprising. And every time I leave these markets, I'm always ill of some description, you you kind of come back picking up something. And you kind of look at the traders and you know, the people who go and do their shopping there every day. And I've never known how they're still standing because it's just it's so obviously a hotbed for diseases. Like it's just you can smell it and see it and feel it. It's they're awful places. And you know, that's my the only If something good can come from this awful, awful situation, it would be that we really learn lessons from this. And if it can truly end this awful wildlife trade and these awful live animal markets, which are the most shockingly sad, sad places, then something good will have come from it, I suppose.
1: What's the situation between, or is there a link between the farms and local politicians or the government? Just something you said there. I was thinking about the resistance from the Chinese government when they were looking at farming tigers, or they are farming tigers in China, and that that link between the farmers and the local government, or you know, the national government. Is there a link when it comes to the dog meat trade between the actual people that are running the farms and local politicians that maybe's making that change in legislation? Or
2: I'd say in South Korea, not particularly. I'd say what happens more is that in certain parts of South Korea. There are definitely dog meat farms exist throughout the peninsula, but there are definite kind of, you know, key farming areas where there are a lot of these larger scale dog meat farms. And I was saying more, it's a matter of no policy. I, I remember years ago meeting with um, with a politician in South Korea and kind of saying and being like, just tell me, you know, how how do I change the situation? What do I do? And he always said to me, you need to go and change the public's mind. And if you change the public's mind and they come and they say what they want a ban, our job is to pass a ban and to enforce it. So your job is to go and change the way people feel. And that's always stuck with me. And the problem in these hotbed dog farming areas is that the politicians aren't feeling any of that support. And so they don't want to go out against all of their voters and make a really controversial decision. You know, it's the same the world over. In Indonesia, I'd say it's very similar where, you know, you have definitely you have the hot spots for where the people are making a living off the dog meat trade, whether it's kind of restaurant owners or traders themselves. And they, they feel the pressure. And so they always want to take things very, very slowly. And I think that means they want to do it when it's not, you know, when they've moved on, they don't want it to be part of their political campaign because it's always divisive and it's always an issue because some people are making a lot of money off it going back to what I I brought up with what I was told I think it's true and I think as campaigners our job is to is to go and really raise public awareness and use that as a really strong lobbying tool and I think you know ultimately with all of the things we're talking about whether it's dog meat wildlife trade or or anything else once the demand stops (laughs) it sounds like a campaign message but it's true the cruelty really will stop and so you know if and again, going back to obviously human behaviour change and everything, you think if we can truly change people's behaviours, all of the issues could be resolved, right?
1: Absolutely. How how do you feel about when you go to a market and you see other animals there? Um, obviously, you're working on the dog meat trade, or or do you do you also, if you see other animals in terrible, awful conditions, do you end up sort of getting involved with that? And and if not, how difficult is it not to get sucked into? other issues to do with animal welfare in the markets
2: yeah it's it's really difficult and um... In the case of, I mean, a lot of the time when we go to markets, we'll then afterwards, we'll kind of write a report and send it to the local authorities and obviously also send it to the president whilst we're at it, documenting all the illegal wildlife that's being sold there. And it's it's in breach of existing laws. And it's the same whether it's the dog meat campaign or the wildlife trade. If existing laws and regulations were adequately enforced, it would be a fraction of the problem, you know, to what it is now, whereas it's just a total lack of enforcement. And so, again, going back to the previous conversation about coronavirus is hopefully this will provide some incentive for laws to be strengthened and enforced throughout the region, you know, and it would have a a significant impact. So we always report that the problem with wildlife is we, we don't have a wildlife rescue facility. Um, and so it's very difficult and there are a lot of disease control met laws which obviously we abide by which means that if you rescue an animal in one particular province you can't move it into a different province you know without certain permits which are very difficult to obtain so it, it's it's very difficult um I, I have definitely bought a few chickens and ducks in my time <laughs> this and um and does it kind of you know does it end the problem for everyone absolutely not but it's Seeing one of my best moments actually was we I end up buying um, three ducks from this god awful it was Tomahawk Extreme Market where they sell everything and um and yeah going back to these markets and kind of think God we're only even talking about dogs and cats no one's even talking about all these other animals which are there you know in their thousands and thousands and just being sorted there and then right in front of you and you know nobody's even seemingly batting an eyelid and these animals are losing their lives it's 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 very surreal so I have bought some ducks and some chickens and I remember one of my favorite moments was when we bought these ducks and we got back to um to this rescue shelter who had you know agreed in advance that they would care for the ducks it's a it's a vegan organization and they're very well cared for and i've seen them since but when we took them out of these washing baskets that we had bought in the market to transport them in um it started raining and as it started raining these ducks came alive and there were these big puddles and these ducks went waddling into the puddles and just came alive like and i don't know how to describe it but it's it it isn't a myth ducks really do love <laughs> water in the rain and and again it's like all these little moments right there and then there they feel like these huge victories and you know that you've walked away the most unimaginable suffering and that unimaginable suffering is going to go on tomorrow and the day after and the day after but right there and then when you can celebrate you think god you guys woke up in the most awful place this morning and now look at you waddling around in the rain and they uh the moment re-energize you to kind of keep going back for more no matter how many times you sway and never going back
0: that's really nice wow that's
1: amazing so how can people help you Lola?
2: Me personally or the (laughs) cause?
1: Listen, if you want to do a plug, we've already proven we are shameless on this podcast. If you've got anything to sell, any furniture, you, you take this opportunity. Harry and I have no standards. Um, you know, at the end, when you listen to this podcast, there will be a bit at the end where Harry and I are trying to sell some furniture, some old books. But um, in terms of, you know, your work, I mean, that's the first thing that came to my head when you just told that amazing story. How can people help you and and help the amazing work that you're doing?
2: Well, I'd say firstly, every single person's actions truly make a difference. You know, so just if everyone could just be kind and make really make decisions every day, you know, think about the products that you buy, think about the activities that you participate in and support and just really give it thought and make those decisions that are right by the animals. And and that alone will save animals' lives every single day and there and it will help show support for the local groups working on all these different issues you know whether it's products that you won't buy because they're tests on animals it just shows the support for cruelty free living which i think is really important you know and it's educate yourself make sure that you're not funding cruel activities and of course support good organizations that are doing the good work and you what, know, what kind of organizations well, might it's, those i be, think right? you should ask harry the <laughs> <laughs> But obviously- you,
1: you two have practiced this, I can tell. This is ridiculous. <laughs> we had a
2: free podcast before you joined, Matt. Sorry, (laughs) but with organize, you know, there are a lot, there are loads of amazing organizations out there, and our organization, Change for Animals Foundation, does work a lot with them. And a lot of the time, they just don't have a way of showing the world either what's going on or the amazing work that's being done. And Change for Animals Foundation always supports those real grassroots movements. And also, you know, in smaller organizations, what you'll often find is you really do have those people who live and breathe these causes and truly every donation that's made really does make a difference and you know and a lot of the time you know it's not always funding exactly what we would you know I would love to say that every single penny raised goes into kind of saving a dog from a market but every single penny given to us does go towards getting as many animals into a position where they don't need to be rescued at all I think that's definitely our ultimate goal is to get to the point where we live in a world where we don't have to be rescuing animals. But until then, we'll rescue those we can and just really keep trying to raise awareness so that individuals can make the right decisions and not support animal cruelty and always make their voice heard, No, you know, no matter who it's to. You never know when you're that last signature on the petition or that last letter that's received that really makes that change. So, so always do it, always speak up, speak out and be kind. Oh. Yeah
1: so what do you think of that matt honestly she's amazing i mean she took advantage of that time though didn't she how many times did lola plug her organization what, in that? what, what organization was that Matt? i don't know i literally can't remember it was...
0: you mean change for animals foundation when she kept mentioning change for animals foundation at uh, change
1: for who's the ceo of that charity harry
0: no idea some wanker i'm not sure but
1: uh yeah from An international animal welfare philanthropist.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's him. Or her.
1: The it one named Harriet. Him. Him.
0: Might be me. Might not be me. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think she mentioned
1: yeah, it. Yeah, it was amazing. Honestly, I, I loved every minute talking to Lola. She was an absolute joy to interview and just have a chat and to get to know. And I just think for anyone who's aspiring out there to get into activism or any sort of animal related campaigning or project work or just trying to get into something they're passionate about in animal welfare i don't think they could do any better than to to listen to that podcast and to to listen to lola's story because it was it was really inspirational
0: absolutely i think if anybody's interested in getting into this kind of line of work or is looking for a some kind of inspirational person to uh, to follow uh, you could do a lot worse than lola and from that on
1: to all the things that are worse than animal welfare well, uh amazing. the next yeah the next animal chat podcast do you like that link yeah. the next animal chat podcast uh will be out sometime whenever next week. um next week next week look out for it but in the meantime download subscribe five star reviews follow share
0: all those things
1: all those things let us know any guests do we care what people think <laughs>
0: <laughs> let's let, let, let's say that we do. I think we probably should. Yeah, but yeah. If anybody's got any suggestions about who they would like to hear or uh, what topics they'd like us to chat about, then yeah, drop us a line via Twitter or text or Facebook
1: or wherever else Facebook. you can find us. I need the friends on Facebook, so get in touch. Yes. Um, and um, yeah, so do that, and then look out for the next episode, which will be with you in a week's time. But otherwise, thank you, thank you for listening, thank you for taking the time. ChangeForAnimals dot com
0: dot <laughs> uh, org, but yeah. You know,
2: oh, sorry, ChangeForAnimals. How many
0: fucking times did we mention it, Matt? For God's sake. <laughs>